So like I said, we've got a lot to accomplish today if we're going to get through the whole book of Mark. I promise I'm going to try to get us out in time for lunch. Um, so I know people often worry about that. Joel told me I have the whole sermon, or the whole book of Mark to preach. And I have to tell you, I was a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit frightened, and a little bit excited. So I think it's, it's been such a great sermon uh, series, and I'm excited to get through it. Now, preachers will often tell you that um, they're the first ones to hear the sermon. As we're preparing it, and we're in the Word, and we're putting the uh, pen to paper, we get to hear the sermon preached to our own hearts first. And I think God uses that to help form the sermon in us that he wants us to preach. And uh, one thing that uh, came to me as I was preparing for this sermon was a renewed sense of awe and wonder and thankfulness uh, that we have the literal words of God. Like what God said to us is written down and in this book. We can take it for granted. I think we can find it boring or tedious or mundane sometimes. We get used to it. But what we've just spent a year and a half looking at, and every time we gather on Sunday, what we look at is the literal words of God. Now, if we stop and we think about that, and we step out of doing it every Sunday or every day or whatever our routine is, God, the God who created the world, who spoke the world into existence, the judge of the world, the one who holds all the stars up in the heavens, the one who knows the numbers of hairs on our head, he spoke to us, and he, and he chose to have it recorded, and he chose to preserve this word for us for thousands of years. And it's, we have it. We have a physical copy of God's words for us, right? And not only that, he sent a physical representative of himself in Jesus Christ, and we have that account and just this gospel that we're looking at today. It's just a beautiful thing, and, and, and we get to read it, and we get to know it, and we get to know him because of it. And it should amaze us, and it should inspire us, and it should, we should read it with, with hope and longing. And I hope that God reminds me of this tomorrow, <laughs> because I've already have probably lost some of the wonder again, the dailiness of life, and the familiarity, and, and just everything that happens to us. We, we forget what we have, what a treasure it is, what a gift and a grace of God that we have his words that he chose. He, had, he wasn't forced to speak to us. He wasn't forced to have scripture written down for us. He did it out of grace. He did it out of kindness. So I, I hope for all of us that as we lean into this text this morning, that, that we lean into it with that as well. And we have a lot to do, and there's a lot of treasures. There's a lot of great stories in Mark um, and we're going to look at some of them, and we're going to skip a lot of them. So if you haven't been here for the series, go back and read the book of Mark. Go back and listen to the sermons. They're all, they're all online. We're going to start with uh, where books start. We're going to start with the title. It's titled Mark because uh, Mark wrote it. Um, a person named John Mark wrote it, and he's not a very big character in the Bible. He's a secondary character. And what he did, actually, was he collected eyewitness accounts from Peter. So all these little snippets we see, all these stories, are eyewitness accounts collected from Peter over the years. And Mark wrote them all down. He said he was Peter's interpreter, that's what they called him, and, and he scribed them all down, and he put them together in, in this book of Mark to, a, to the people in Rome around 55-ish A.D., so about 20 years after Christ. 
And Mark was the framework for both Luke and Matthew. So it's a very important book. But this is more than just uh, assembled stories just lined up chronologically or something like that. Mark is telling a story in the way that he puts these stories together. So that's Mark's voice in this, is the way that he assembles these eyewitness accounts, and he's laying out a larger narrative. So there's some added depth in these stories because of the way that they're arranged. If we look at a big picture overview of Mark, we can see it's broken down in three sections. One through seven is Jesus beginning his ministry. He's in Galilee. He's just getting started. Eight through 10, he and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. And then 11 through 16, they arrive in Jerusalem and Jesus dies. Right? That's, that's the big picture. So we've talked about the title. We've talked a little about the structure and history. And so now we're going to be diving into the content And again, we're going to be moving fast. I'm going to try to use verse references, and we're going to be flipping through um, Scripture. Um, Again, I would invite you, if you haven't been with us, to go back to read. If you have a question, you can ask us, of course, or you can go back and hit the sermons and get a lot more depth about each one of these stories because we preached all the way through this book. But I want us to start at the beginning in Mark 1.1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's Mark. Mark is speaking there, not Peter, actually. And that's one of Mark's only comments in the whole book of Mark. It's a book that's named after him. That's all he has to say is this line. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, and he goes in quotes, but Mark is making a statement, and Mark is answering a question that's absolutely central to this account. This whole account he's about to put together, he's doing it at the very beginning of the book. And we're going to see it's a question that's throughout the book from beginning to end. And that question that Mark is answering is actually smack dab also comes from the middle of the book uh, where Jesus and Peter are having an exchange and it's called Peter's Confession. It's in chapter 8, verse uh, 27 and 29. Jesus first asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? Who do they say that I am? And then he asked Peter, but who do you, who do you say that I am? It's the second question that I, that I want to ask us here today. It's this question I have to ask my own heart, and it's the question for all of us as we read through this. Who do we say that Jesus is? A.W. Tozer had this to say, He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's what matters most is what we think about when we think about God. So when we think about who is Jesus, that's one of the most important things about us. So that question is going to be asked of each of us today. Who do we say he is? But first we're going to look at who Jesus says he is. Who does he claim to be? And I want us all to sit with that as we get going. So... We're going to start moving here, and we're going to get into John the Baptist in chapter 1 again. He's this wild man prophet coming from the wilderness, and he is the first um, voice of God in 400 years. There's been 400 years since the last prophet spoke the words of God in 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 the period between the two testaments. And he comes, and he cries out, and he says, greater is he that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So he's pointing to someone else already. And we see it goes right into the baptism of Jesus. And this is where we see the identity of Jesus proclaimed. 
I can't imagine the scene, right? It says, the heavens were torn open. I don't know what that looks like. The heavens were torn open, and a dove came down and descended on Jesus, and then God spoke from the heavens, and he said in 111, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was just now beginning his ministry. He hadn't done much. He's not completed his mission. He's not died in our stead, right? He hasn't done what he's come to do yet. But the Father makes two statements, and he makes them in a specific order, and it matters. And the first one is one of identity. You are my beloved son, right? And then, and only then, he says, with you I am well pleased. I'm going to keep that. We're going to come back to that later. In 115, we see Jesus make another statement about who he says he is. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus is claiming authority, right? He's saying, I'm the king. And not only am I the king, I'm God, right? Because wherever the king is, is where the kingdom is, and he's there. So he's saying the kingdom of God has drawn near. We're going to move down to the section titled, The Man with an Unclean Spirit, and we see something interesting. We see an unclean spirit says who Jesus is. He speaks in 124. The unclean spirit says, you are the Holy One of God. And when Jesus spoke to that spirit, the spirit obeyed and did what he says, and we'll see that throughout Mark. Through the end of chapter 1, we see Jesus' command with both physical and spiritual authority even engaging what would be abhorrent uh, behavior. He was, went out and touched a leper, right? You, just, you never did that. You didn't do that. That account is one of my favorites in Mark. And again, if, if uh, you want to know more about that beautiful thing, go back and listen to the sermon. Um, in chapter 2, we see Jesus' continuous healings. Um, he does something there we're going to see a lot. He upsets the religious elite. He ruffles the feathers. He gets them excited. And um, he does this by saying he can forgive sins. And of course, the scribes know that only, only God can forgive sins. So he's claiming himself to be God in front of the religious elites. So he gets his first legal charge uh, set against him is, is that he's blaspheming, right? So they're already starting to build a case against Jesus. And that chapter 2 closes with uh, two more statements of Jesus' identity. The first one's about fasting, and he says he is the bridegroom and therefore the most important person at the party. And we see in 2.20 that he's already dropping hints that this mission may not be a long-term mission. He's already mentioning that he won't be there. And when questioned about the Sabbath, he takes one of the Jewish's, the Jews' uh, most important sacred traditions of the Sabbath, and he says, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So he's making a claim here that the uh, religiosity of the Pharisees was keeping them too blind to see. Jesus is the purpose of the law, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And they can't see past all their rules and all their check marks. They're so busy trying to be holy, they didn't see that holiness was embodied uh, across the carpet from them. They couldn't see that Jesus was right there and speaking to them. We're in Mark Three, and it starts with another claim of authority of the Sabbath and another set of angry Pharisees. And this time the Pharisees gather with the Herodians and they figure out 
how to destroy Jesus. So it's gone from leveraging a charge of blasphemy to now gathering up to see how do we get rid of this guy. And 311, uh, we see another unclean spirit answer the question, who is Jesus? And the unclean spirit says, you are the son of God. So we see this over and over again. And 20 and 21, Jesus comes home, comes home to family, what should be a, a nice, safe space to be. And we see his family snatches him off the street and calls him crazy, right? They didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They thought he must be crazy. I think if you ask them who is Jesus, they would have said, well, he's my brother, he's my son, he's my cousin, he's my friend, right? They would not have said he is Lord of all, he's Messiah, he is Christ. So they couldn't see it yet. Chapter 3, we get two more stories of identity. We see the scribes come in and say, uh, Jesus is possessed by Satan himself, surely. And Jesus responds with what I'm guessing is a broken heart. And he gives them a hard warning. These scribes, these Pharisees, these religious elite are so blinded uh, by, to the truth. Their heart is so hardened that they're in danger of pushing away their only means of rescue. It's the equivalent of being stuck on a cliff and someone throwing you a rope and you curse the rope, right? You don't want the rope. That's what these guys, that's where they're in danger. This is this unforgivable sin that they're in danger of occurring. They're, they're damning their, their rescue. They can't see who Jesus is and it may cost them everything, even eternal damnation. And verses 334 and 35, Jesus makes another claim that we talked about this morning already that there's a new family, a family that even more important than blood family. It's a claim of a bond so deep that it exceeds anything else. Jesus has new brothers, new sisters, and a new mother. Praise God. That means we can be adopted. And not adopted like the stepbrother adopted who isn't loved quite as much as the real brother. No, what he says is the opposite. We're adopted in and we're actually loved more than the biological family, more than the blood family that, that we see. So that says something about our identity. It says something, if you were to ask Jesus, who, who does he say that we are? He would say, we're family. So that takes us to Mark 4. And Mark 4 can be a confusing text. There's a lot of parables. But when we look at them as a whole and we break them down quickly, we can see that it's just several truths that flow into one another. The first first one in the parable of the sower, we see that not everyone who hears the word will respond and will have the same reaction. In fact, most won't respond and most will fall away. The next parable says those that hear the word have a responsibility to do something with it. And then it goes on and says, if you are, if you are one who does hear the word, if you receive the word and it grows, we have nothing to claim credit for. It was a seed planted by someone else and grown by God. And finally, he speaks of the power of even a little faith. And we close chapter 4 with another story of authority, uh, the, the story of uh, Jesus calming the storm. And we see again that even the disciples don't know what's going on. They still, they still remain clueless. And, and they're scared. And in verse 40, Jesus says, Have you still... No faith. 
And we can see the disciples' reaction. They're, they're, they, don't know, they don't know what they're doing. In verse 41, it says, who then is this? Right? They, don't, they don't know the identity of who they've been following. They've seen demons confess who this is. They've seen Jesus heal. Surely they've heard the story of his baptism, that crazy event. And they still, they don't know who is this. And we'll see that doesn't change very much. In, in chapter 5, we start with an account of, of three different answers, three different responses to, to who Jesus is, with three different people begging Jesus for something. With, first, with a demon named Legion. Legion cries out in verse 7 with a, with a better theological understanding than the disciples just showed on the boat. Right? This demon understands who Jesus is. And he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. See, the demon understood that Jesus was the Son of God, and he had authority over it. Legion understood that Jesus could do as he wished, and it was as such that he begged Jesus to show him mercy. And next we see the response of the herdsmen, the people from the country, the people from the city. Um, if you don't know the story, Jesus cast out the demon and drove it into a herd of pigs and drove the herd of pigs into the ocean, right? Which is upsetting if you're a farmer and you own pigs, right? All the pigs are dead, um, and so they're scared. They, Jesus is talking to demons, and Jesus is killing livestock, and they just want Jesus to leave. And they're begging Jesus, get out of town before you kill all the sheep and all the goats and everything. Right? So they're just scared. And finally, we see the man who was saved, the man who was possessed by this demon. And he recognizes the identity of Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, as Rescuer. And he ask Jesus. He begs Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no, not right now. And then he leaves Jesus and he goes and proclaims and he tells everyone what Jesus had done for him, right? And everybody marveled at what, what Jesus had done for him. So there's more here. There's the story of Jairus's daughter. There's a the story of the woman who touched Jesus and was healed. And the crowd simply laughed. And we just don't have time today to go into those stories, but they're beautiful as well. So we're already moving on to chapter 6. And we see Jesus rejected at Nazareth. And again, Jesus is in his hometown again. Should be friends, should be family, should be, should be a good time. And the people of Nazareth, just they don't get it still. They don't get it. They were, they're blinded by familiarity, perhaps. They're blinded by uh, just proximity. Right? They've been around him, they, they knew him, and, and they couldn't see it. And, and Jesus, it says, marveled at their unbelief. He couldn't believe that they didn't believe. He was marveling at it. And then we go all the way down to the end of chapter 6, and we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. And here again we see the disciples don't understand who they're following yet. They need bread. And the disciples say, we'll, we'll go to the store and we'll buy some bread, right? It's going to cost a lot of money. They don't recognize they're sitting next to the bread of life. They don't recognize that Jesus is there and he provides, and he provides abundantly, right? They have leftover bread by the time Jesus is breaking the bread that is there. And they, they, they can't see it. We see it again when, when they see Jesus walking on the water, verse 51 in 52, it says, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
They just can't quite make the connection yet, right? They see it over and over. They're exposed. They're next to it, but they can't, they can't see. They can't see. It says their hearts were hardened. They can't make the connection because they haven't had a heart transplant yet, right? They still have hard hearts. And in verse 7, we see, or in chapter 7, we see Jesus again speaking with the religious elite. And again, they're, they're struggling for adherence to the laws and rules. And Jesus says there, there is a higher truth than keeping the law. It's not about not breaking the rules. It's about uh, the heart that condemns, right? It's not rule keeping. It's our heart. And he warns them of their hypocrisy. And we see next this beautiful healing of the Syrophoenician woman. And this can be a challenging story. This can be a confusing story. So again, I would say, uh, look back to the sermon for clarity, but quickly, this woman was in one of the lowest of low uh, cultural positions. She was a woman, so she shouldn't have approached Jesus as a rabbi. She was a Gentile, so she shouldn't approach Jesus as a rabbi. And she was a Syrophoenician, so she definitely should not have approached Jesus as a rabbi. And this woman approaches Jesus, boldly approaches Jesus, and he gives her somewhat of a reproach. And she comes right back and she says, have mercy. She begs of Jesus, have mercy. She's not phased. She knows her identity and she knows what she's heard of Christ and she believes it. And Jesus grants her healing. It's a beautiful thing. So, and then there's another healing of a group of people begging for Jesus, begging for Jesus to heal. And they come in belief, and he heals. And the whole crowd this time responds in proclamation in verse 37. They say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right. So now we're in chapter 8. Uh, Jesus is um, on the road. Right? These stories have uh, names of towns, and we can see Jesus progressing along this path to Jerusalem. It's this fateful, intentional, slow journey towards his death. Right? He's walking with the disciples. And Jesus is surrounded by a crowd once again. Uh, and they are hungry once again. And once again, the disciples are clueless. Right? They gather up seven loaves of bread, and they feed everybody, and they end up with seven baskets of leftovers, right? So more leftovers than they had bread to start with, and they, and they don't get it. We jump down to 814. The disciples do something I think I would probably do, is they forget to bring enough bread for the boat trip, right? So there's 13 of them on a boat, and they have one loaf of bread, and these guys become worried, Maybe we don't have enough bread. I think they have amnesia. I think I don't know what's wrong. They they can't remember what Jesus has literally just done. Be, be, between the two crowds that Jesus fed with bread and the fish, he had he had fed somewhere north of eighteen thousand, probably twenty thousand plus people, and he did that with twelve loaves of bread and two fish. These guys have one loaf of bread and 13 people, and they think, maybe we don't have enough bread, right? I, I did the math. Jesus can feed about 1,500 people out of a loaf of bread plus leftovers, right? He can feed the disciples in this boat with one loaf of bread. 
but they don't understand. Right? They don't get it. They're still blinded themselves. In verse 21, Jesus says, do you not yet, do you not yet understand? Right? They didn't. They didn't get it. They'd been so close to Jesus. These were his companions. These were his, this was, this was his crew. This was his friends. And they walked with him and they witnessed all these things that we've already just bypassed with the walking on water and the healing and the feeding and the, you know, everything that he's been doing. They didn't understand. How many of us think that proximity will save us, right? I wonder how many of us think that just being around Christians, just being around a church, that's enough. If we're close, that's enough. How many teenagers think their parents' faith is enough? We're in the house. My parents believe. Surely that's enough for me. I have proximity to faith. These men lived with Jesus. Your parents definitely aren't Jesus. I know them, right? They were his closest friends, and they're, they're clueless, right? They don't get it. Proximity wasn't enough for them with Jesus. A bit further down in, in, in 27, 827, we see that key question again. It says, who do people say that I am? This is Jesus speaking. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, and he said, you are the Christ, right? And it appears at least that maybe Maybe Peter got it. Maybe he understands. Jesus is the Christ, right? But we're going to quickly see that Peter still doesn't understand. You go, up, you go down just, just a little bit further, and we see Jesus foretell his death, and he does this three times pretty quickly in the next section of scriptures here. And this is the first in verse 31, and it's the first of those three. And Peter, who had just professed, Jesus is Christ, Jesus as Christ, after Jesus um, foretells his death, pulls Jesus to the side and gives Jesus a talking to, right? Surely you don't mean that. Surely you're not going to die, right? Because he called him Christ, right? Which means anointed one, which means the chosen one. But Peter still had a worldly idea of what that meant. He had a worldly idea of rescue, a worldly idea of freedom, that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus calls him and says, get behind me, Satan. So that's how quickly Peter just got put back in his place. And there's so much here. There's so many beautiful stories, and we just have to keep moving through. Chapter 9 opens with this glimpse of an identity of Jesus we get to peel back the flesh for just a second and see God's glory radiating from Jesus and the transfiguration. And we get to hear the voice from God, the voice of the heavens open up again, and it says, this is my beloved son, right? Who, who is Jesus? This is my beloved son. Listen to him, right? Another proclamation of identity. And in 930, we see again that Jesus is foretelling his death. 
And in 932, we get to see that, again, the disciples don't know what's going on. It says, but they, the disciples, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So they don't get it. They know they don't get it. And at this point, they're afraid of looking any more stupid, right? They don't don't want to ask again, what is going on? And we jump down uh, into 10 now. 10.13. And we see, once again, they're not on the same page, Jesus and the disciples. They're keeping the children from coming to him, right? Jesus says, let the little children come, and they're keeping him. And we jump down even to the end of 10, and we see 10.41. They become indignant over a thing about seating order. Who gets to sit next to Jesus, right? They become upset about that to the point that Jesus scolds them and says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom of many. They, they still don't get what's going on. So we get to, we get to chapter 11, and, and Jesus has progressed his way through these stories and through these towns, and he's coming into Jerusalem, and the people are there, and there's palm branches, and everybody's happy and jubilant, and he's riding in on the donkey, and everything seems pretty positive up to this point. And we jump down to verse 15, and we see Jesus in the temple, and Jesus is flipping tables, and Jesus is calling out the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees and the council. They've taken what should have been holy, and they've turned it into a house of robbers, a den of robbers. They didn't understand that the temple belonged to Jesus. It was there for his worship, and they made it about them. So these men, these men who were making the temple about them. They, they weren't stupid. They were intelligent men. They were men who studied scripture. They were men who knew the word. They were men who devoted their lives to study. And they missed it. Right? They missed it by such a wide margin that when the Messiah stood in front of them, their plan is let's kill him. Right? They couldn't see it. They were blinded. They missed it. In verse 20, 1120, we see Jesus use this fig tree to teach. And the the disciples are surprised once more to see what Jesus said would happen, would actually happen, and it, it did. And Jesus' response to them is to have faith in God, right, which is a confusing response. But Jesus knew that the temple, like the fig tree, would soon be gone. And Jesus knew that, like the fig tree, he would suffer a curse, and die. And he's trying to get the disciples to lift up their eyes. Quit looking at what's in front of you and think more spiritually, think more heavenly. Jesus understands what they're about to experience. He knows what's coming and he knows it's going to rock them. And so his advice is to have faith in God. Lift your eyes up to the Lord. In the next few sections, we see Jesus exchange again with the priests and the scribes. They argue about authority, about taxes, and about resurrection. They're coming at Jesus with all these different angles. And they're thinking if they can get Jesus to slip up, if they can come at him with this angle and prove him wrong, if they can build evidence against Jesus by getting him to answer in a specific way, then then they'll have it set. And I'm, I'm reminded by so many coming to faith stories, and even just recently Logan, who got baptized, and he said there was a period of time when 
I was confronted with the gospel and I thought, this can't be true. I'm going to prove it wrong and I'm going to struggle and I'm going to find this thing and I'm going to fight. And that's just not right. Like, that can't be true. And like the scribes and like the Pharisees, people have been doing that for thousands of years, trying to, trying to find this loophole or this trap that says it's, it's not true. Trying to, to um, escape even the call of Jesus by arguing. And, and just like the scribes and just like the priests and Pharisees, we can't, in truth, find a way, right? Because Jesus is the truth. What he says is true. We're going to jump down uh, and look at another story in 12. In 1228, there's a story of an inquisitive scribe who seems to have seems to be less confrontational, right? He's not quite as angry as the other scribes. And he asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, right? And Jesus answers him and is satisfied with the scribe's response as well. And then Jesus says this in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God, right? The scribe understood in his answer that God requires more than offerings. He requires the heart, He knew the right answer, right? He answered the question correctly. He said the right things. He didn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So that's why he was close. He knew the right thing, but he didn't acknowledge Jesus as as Lord. So even knowing the right answers to the questions isn't enough, right? That can only get us close. In chapter 13, Jesus, again, tries to get these guys to quit looking at the worldly and lift up your eyes to the heavenly because they're walking around and they're in Jerusalem and there's some impressive structures in Jerusalem. Just the temple itself was amazing. And one of the disciples says something like, cool building, <laughs> and which Jesus launches into this long section of scripture about the second coming, right? And it may appear to be out of place, Why respond with that? And again, Jesus is preparing them for what's about to happen, right? He's going to die. He's going to come back and leave. The temple is going to be destroyed. They're going to be invaded. Like, things are happening that are going to to be bad, and he's, he's trying to prepare them. They're struggling to believe, and he's calling them to be on guard, and he's calling them to be prepared to suffer, and he says, I'll be with you. Right? He's giving them all these promises. And Jesus knows that his resurrection, that when he comes back from the dead, it's going to prove all his promises are true. Right? So they're going to be able to cling to these. They're going to be able to remember these and cling to these hopes. So, so we're going to jump to uh, 14.3. And we, we see, we see a, a, a story of a, a woman Mark just calls her woman, but Matthew and John report that this is Mary, the sister of Martha, and what this woman does. Mary recognized Jesus as a person of infinite worth. He was worth whatever she had and more, right? She was in his presence, and so she gave everything she had, right? She anointed him with this oil, and what's surprising is not that Mary did that. What's what's surprising is that, once again, the disciples are indignant. They're upset. They counted up the cost of the oil, and it was 300 days' wages, and they decided that Jesus was not worth that, 
That was a waste, right? Mary recognized he's worth all that and more. And again, we're going to skip some amazing stories and some amazing texts in here. So please go back and read. But we're going to go all the way down to 1461. And we're going to see Jesus standing in front of the council, standing in front of these religious leaders and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these people he's been arguing with, all these people he's been upsetting uh, all the way up to this point. And we see the high priest asking Jesus who he says that he is. At the end of 61, he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus was asked about his identity. He knew the outcome of this trial. He'd been telling anyone who would listen for months, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die at the hand of the Jews and the Romans. And he can't help but tell the truth. He can't help but profess his identity, right? Even though it would cost him everything. And we compare that to quickly to Peter's denial, right? Peter's in the courtyard. He's confronted by a servant girl, a small servant. This isn't the high council. This isn't someone going to put Peter to death. And he denies his identity as Jesus' friend three times, right? Even cursing and, and putting a curse on himself and swearing. And then the rooster crows and Peter's heart breaks. And we know that's not the end of Peter's story, thank God. But it's definitely got to be a low point, <laughs> in Peter's story. We're going to keep moving. We're, we're approaching the end now. We're in Mark 15. And everything's been leading up to this point. Joel put it well when he, when he said, this is the crux of the matter. This is, this is all of human history hinges on what's about to happen here. And, and we see Jesus in front of Pilate and, and in verse... Uh, 15 verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, you have said so. Jesus says nothing else. Jesus offers no more defense. That wasn't even a defense. And he, because he's being accused of claiming to be God. And that's something that he's done, rightfully so. So there's no defense to make. I want us just to jump down for a second to 15, 15 verse 7. This is always a challenging uh, verse of Scripture for me to read. And it says, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And then they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in, in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his clothes back on him, and led him out to crucify him. This level of mocking, this level of mockery is beyond anything that we could fathom, right? Usually when someone mocks us, there's a little bit of truth to it, something similar to that. But if you read Revelation 4 and 5 and the description of the kingliness of Jesus, of his, the throne room that he sits in, the crown that he wears, and the robe that fills the room, it gives us some idea of what this, what this was. These guys are, are mocking Jesus they did not know him. They did not recognize him, that he was a true king with a real crown and a real throne room, smashing thorns and 
saluting him, mocking him, striking him, spitting on him, kneeling down. Jesus sits in a throne room where there's these sick, or these creatures that have six wings that fly around for eternity, day and night, day and night, and they just say, holy, holy, holy. That's the throne that Jesus rightfully sits on, right? And these men strip him and beat him and spit on him, and he willingly submits to it on our behalf. He doesn't have to. He could have gone. He could have walked out. He could have called a legion of angels, or he could have just ended the whole thing, right? But he willingly submits to this shame and this mocking on our behalf so that we don't have to, right? It it occurs all the way while he's suffering on the cross, while he's nailed to that tree. The mocking continues, right? All the way up until his death in the ninth hour of the day. The ninth hour of the day is significant it's the, it's the time of the evening sacrifices for the Jews. They would bring sacrifices to the temple, and that's the sacrifice Christ made on that time. The ninth hour of the day, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. The temple veil rips from the top to the bottom, removing the separation between God and man, right? Jesus, our mediator. And the Roman centurion, this nameless, single Roman centurion, says, truly, this man was the son of God. His family and friends take down his body and laid it in the tomb, but they didn't have time to prepare it properly. There's a a lot they need to do with perfumes and oils and wrapping. And so they had to wait for Sabbath to pass, and then they come back and do that. We pick up in chapter 16. These women show up to anoint his body, and Jesus' body isn't there. And there's an angel that says he's risen. And in verse 8, it reads this, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's the end of Mark. Right? I know you're saying, no, that's not the end of Mark. We just read some more Mark today. (laughs) Historically, that's the end of Mark. Most of the original manuscripts that we have, from the earliest manuscripts, verse 8 is the last verse. Your Bible should have a footnote there in reference to that. And Mark leaves us with this cliffhanger. Jesus isn't there. The women are afraid. What's happened? Right? He leaves us to wrestle with a claim that was made by Jesus. This claim that was made over and over and over again. Is he the Son of God? Is he the Messiah? Will we make that claim or will we run away too, right? Reminded of the words of um, C.S. Lewis in in Mere Christianity. This is a bit of a long quote, um, so stay with me. But it says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. There is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who considers himself a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God, right? We must decide if Jesus was a lunatic, a liar, or Lord, right? That's what we're left with. But even that's not enough, right? How many times did the demons confess who Jesus was? This is the Son of God. Truly, this is the Holy One of God. They recognize Jesus. So merely acknowledging it is not enough. Right? We know the demons aren't saved. We know the demons aren't family. We can see from the disciples that knowing Jesus and having proximity to Jesus or his, or his people is not enough to understand We've, we've finished Mark, and, it, and apparently the, the disciples, there was not a lot of signs of them understanding at the end of Mark. It's not until we get into Acts. Chris mentioned it this morning, the, the Pentecost, right? The coming of the Holy Spirit. It's not until then, we hear it in Peter's sermon, they, they understand. They've been given the gift of the Spirit, and it clicks. They understand who Jesus was. They understand the mission of of God, right? It's the work of the Spirit to bring what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished to light, right? The Spirit does that. It brings light to the glory of Christ, and it's still the Spirit's work today. So if if you're here today and you feel like a disciple in Mark, maybe you've been really close, and maybe you've been to church a lot, and maybe you've heard the stories, and maybe you're around Christians, and Maybe you just don't get it. Maybe it just doesn't make sense yet. I want to offer a few, a few things here. I want to discourage you from just trying harder. Right? You can't just try harder. It's not going to work. I want to discourage you from taking solace in your parents' faith or your partner's faith or someone in your household's faith. Right? And I want to encourage you to pray. Pray for the Spirit to work. Join the people we saw today and beg God for spiritual healing. Beg God for the truth. He will reveal reveal the truth and the Spirit works and Jesus saves. And once healing has occurred, you can join the man from Mark 5, and go out and profess and proclaim what Jesus has done. What he has done is he has taken us from enemies to brothers and sisters, closer than his actual physical brothers and sisters. And by grace, he's made us a family. And when the Father looks at us now, he can say, I am well pleased in us because of what Christ did on our behalf. So we're back to this, what's considered the longer ending of Mark, right? This, what we read this morning. And we can see in there, there's the Great Commission, 
right? And it's the Great Commission is simply that, a recognition of what Jesus has done. It's what Jesus has accomplished, that he lived, died, and was resurrected on our behalf, and it's a command to go and proclaim everything that Jesus has done for us. It's, it's also found in Matthew, so it's not like it's this thing that we're not sure why it's in there, right? There's, there's a Great Commission in Matthew, there's a Great Commission in Mark. Uh, it's still a long part of church history, and it's still, it's, it's the natural outcome of a supernatural event, right? Of us coming to the understanding of saving faith by grace through the Spirit in Jesus Christ, right? It's what naturally occurs. It's the, the telling of something that we love and something we're excited about. So we've gone through all of Mark, and, and again, I would just reiterate, if, if, if you're with the disciples, it's a time to pray. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to take a, we're going to take a moment and pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for giving it to us in our language. Thank you for giving us the spirit to help us understand. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gospel and for Christ, Lord, who who has rescued us. Lord, I pray if, if there are those in this room today who are close to the kingdom like that scribe. Lord, that you would rescue, that you would pull them in, that you would supernaturally heal them. Lord, we beg of you that you would rescue. We beg of you that you would take hard hearts and make them soft through your spirit, through your word, through your community. God, please do that today. Please rescue. And we thank you for your grace and your kindness and your love and your mercy. God be with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.